the sad thing is emerging markets or developing countries, at least the ones I work in in Africa, data is so sparse. You know, when I started my PhD, it was very clear that I wasn't going to be able to take a data set off the shelf. It doesn't exist. From the MIT Sloan School of Management, this is Data Made to Matter. I'm Neil Hartman. A developmental economist uses data to track how technology is changing lives in Africa. Tavneet Suri is a professor of applied economics here at MIT Sloan. She's also scientific director for Africa for MIT's Jamil Poverty Action Lab. And she's often on the ground in Kenya, collecting data on telecom innovations and their impacts. Tavneet, thank you for joining us. Thanks for the nice welcome. Since 2008, you've been studying the financial and social impacts of the mobile phone-based money system in Kenya. How is mobile banking changing the economy in Kenya? Yeah, I'll give you a couple of the big streams of work that has come out of this. One of the things we asked was whether this mobile money system improved resilience. And the reason it would is basically in a lot of developing economies, you don't have standard things we think of helping people with risk. Right. So if you think of the U.S., I've got unemployment insurance from the government if I lose my job. I've got health insurance, maybe from the ACA, maybe from something else, maybe from my employer. We have all these kind of either public sector or private sector insurance products or risk dealing products that help us. These are both largely absent in emerging markets or in developing countries. What does that mean? Well, people kind of create these social relationships with each other to try and deal with risk. So basically, I say to you, Neil, if something bad happens to you, I'll help you. But then when something bad happens to me, you'll return the favor. So this becomes sort of an insurance contract. You know, we and we see these existing in most developing countries. And so when mobile money came along, you know, when something bad happens to you, it turns out I actually have to get you money, (laughs) right? Like that's the deal. Right. So how this happened before was I would travel to your house or I would wait for a bus driver to go to your town or something and hand him the money to get there. And this was expensive, not very efficient, not very safe, you know, all those bits. So when this mobile phone platform system sort of showed up, all of these transactions basically ended up on mobile phones, which was way cheaper much better access, way more convenient. And the other bit of this is, so basically what would happen is if I have to travel to you to give you the money, you don't live that far away from me because the transport costs are so enormous that there's no point you being 500 kilometers from me because I'll never get you the money. Okay. And so you kind of constrained these social relationships to be pretty geographically close. When I move it onto the mobile phone, there's no transport cost. It's the same transaction fee whether you're standing next to me or whether you're a thousand kilometers away from me. So basically now I can grow that network. And the reason I want to do that is if you live really close to me, it's far more likely that we experience the same bad events. If there's a flood, guess what? We're both in trouble and then who do we go to? So you're able to diversify your risks better. So the first piece of work that we did showed improved financial resilience, better diversification of risk. I reached out to more different, more people, more different types of people. And whenever anything bad happened, I was able to kind of maintain my expenditures on food, on health, on education, on all these things. So we've also seen some information that uh, this project has really helped to lift people out of poverty and has improved significantly the livelihood of people, particularly women in Kenya. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So after we did this resilience piece, we kind of waited a few years and went back 2014 to say, okay, you know, the product's been around for six, seven years. What's kind of the longer term effects it has over this period? And so we found that it reduced poverty by two percentage points in Kenya. This was approximately 190,000 households moved out of extreme poverty as a result. And then we see that these effects are slightly bigger for the female-headed households. 
And then we also looked within the household and we see that one of the ways this is happening is that women were switching occupation. They were moving out of agriculture into more business retail, right? Now, I don't mean starting apple business. I mean, you know, <laughs> a little bit of retail instead of just growing your vegetables for your own consumption, taking them to the market and setting up a stall and selling, you know, that sort of small scale business. And, you know, one of the reasons this could happen is if you're better protected against risk, it would naturally expect you to change your investments and change what you do because sure. you know the downside is better protected. And so the business part might be higher risk for women, but now they're better protected so they can engage in higher risk, higher return things. So how does a relatively simple text message-based system do all of that, pull people out of poverty? And is it working now in other parts of the world? Yeah, I mean, it sounds like a very simple system. I think the reason it works is it's connecting people to a transaction system that's just cheap and allows them to do more financially than they could with cash. Mm -hmm. Imagine I'm a small scale business. I can do a transaction with my supplier who's traveling 200 miles. He doesn't want to travel out to me because he's worried I won't have cash. I send him the cash in advance and he goes, okay, now I can go and deliver stuff, right? <laughs> it allows a whole bunch of transactions that are just so expensive to do in cash. And if you think of African economies, I mean, transport costs are absurdly high. So what this does is kind of take transport costs out of a lot of the equation. So I think that's kind of why it's worked, is it's opened up a set of transactions, which if you had to do, were just so expensive to get done in cash. Is it working other places? That's a great question. Part of the, the, the lack of success or success has been the business model of the company that did it, very clearly. And so people are slowly figuring out how to do it correctly, but someone's already replicated our work in Tanzania before we could even do it. <laughs> and actually finds the same resilience effects in the short term, because right. it's still short term there. And so, yeah, it's growing in a bunch of countries. You know, I think the current number of state of the industry report was something like 270 odd launches across 90 countries or oh, something. Terrific. Not all of them super successful. But they start off and they kind of work out how to get there, hopefully. Excellent. Yeah. What challenges did you face in the beginning in terms of setting up your experiments and, and collecting your data? Yeah, it's a, that's a great question. So when we were planning our study, it was really early. And there were very few users of the service. And so we had done all the statistical stuff to get 10 to 15% of users in our first round. We got close to 40. I was like, God, we need to spend those four months, did we, really? <laughs> So we caught it right at the kind of takeoff. And I think, you know, we didn't know it would be a success. And so it's a pretty big risk sort of setting up a study where you don't know if this product is going to be successful or not. But sure. you're like, if it is, we've got a great agenda. If it isn't, well, we move on to something else, you know. So I think that's some of it. And then, you know, the usual challenges of fieldwork. I actually like to tell the story about mobile payments, which, you know, this is not the biggest use case for it. But when we do surveys, I send teams into the field all over the country. And the thing is, in developing countries, you tend to pay weekly because people are closer to kind of subsistence. So you'll see the frequency of payments higher. So what we do for our teams is I would get a supervisor to go out every week on the Friday to try and pay our staff. Mm -hmm. And this is like expensive, not trivial to do. And you worry about like carrying cash around. And, you know, the bank branches, even in the towns we were working, would close at three. So there's no chance he's getting there before three <laughs> to do payments and pull out of the bank. Right? right. And so now with mobile money, all we do is literally person I'm paying phone number and amount, upload an Excel sheet to the web, all done. 
in like 30 seconds, Perfect. right? And they all get it dispensed into their mobile money accounts. They can deal with the cash. I don't have to deal with cash. And, and you've eliminated that risk. And you eliminate terrific. that risk. Yeah, in Sierra Leone, where I also used to do some work, the exchange rate to the dollar, it's like, you know, 4,000 leons to the dollar <laughs> or something. So our guys are carrying literally like bags of cash. I hate to say it, but like, you know, they take you a bus with a bag of cash and I'm always going, this can't be great. And so when their mobile money system came around, we were like, oh, great. Put everything digitally so that we don't have to worry that, you know, one of our staff gets robbed or worse. The yeah, fun terrific. times of doing research in Africa. Yes. And your research and interest are ever expanding. Uh, you and your team conducted field research during the 2013 uh, national elections in Kenya with the goal of improving civic engagement. What was the experiment about? In that election, the Kenyan Electoral Commission was sort of brand new because of a disputed election the last time. And so we created a new electoral commission and they decided they wanted a clean, free and fair election. So they invested in digitizing the voter register. They re-registered the whole country with biometrics. Mm. The idea is you get dead people off the logs, you get fake people off the logs and you clean up the voter log. And so they did all this. So we ran a large field experiment with like half of the constituencies in the country and we texted something like 1.8 million people every day in the six days leading up to the election. But the idea was to kind of tell them the commission was doing a good job and try to motivate them to vote. Given the last election had been disputed, the commission was worried people would disengage from the political systems. And, you know, texting is actually really cheap, by the way. <laughs> so this is like a very cheap way of voter engagement. And then we followed up and looked at what happened to turnout, of course. Of course. And then we also did a survey about a year later of about 7,700 people and just asked them a whole bunch of things around political attitudes. Because you would have thought both the process of them taking part in an election as well as kind of hearing about the commission trying to be fair and clean would kind of change your political attitudes and engagement. And then what happened on election day was the entire biometric system failed. Oh. And the reason was kind of all sorts of weird reasons. So I'll give you one example, which was in places that didn't have power, they forgot to get the extension cables out right. to these rural areas. And so, you know, you see the votes come in and then three hours later, bang, the laptop is out. <laughs> in some cases, they didn't give people the passwords for the laptops. So the country had to switch quickly to a manual voting system when these started collapsing. Okay. So when we went back and asked attitudes, the one big one we were really interested in was trust in your institutions. The Electoral Commission worked really hard to try and create trust and try and create this biometric system. And so we thought, oh, you know, it should improve trust. So we did find an increase in voter turnout. People did respond to the text message and showed up to vote, okay. as expected. Right. The bit we didn't expect was we actually saw a fall in trust as a result of these text messages, mm -hmm. which was not what we expected or intended. <laughs> when we went back and started to think about why this happened, I think what we did was when we texted people telling them, look, the commission's trying to be clean. Look, go vote. It's important to vote they kind of got this impression that the commission was really great and was organized and efficient and trustworthy and cleaning up house. Right. And so you set up these expectations and then they go vote and it all collapses on the election day and they suddenly go. And so they revised down their trust more than the people who kind of weren't prompted by the, by, by the commission and us. And so I think that's what happened is when you do these things and you engage voters, you also set up expectations of how they think about you as the commission. Right. And if you can't match those expectations, you're going to have the opposite effects of what you were trying to do in the first place, because they'll be more disappointed because you engaged them and tried to tell them, look, I'm so awesome. And then 
you turned out not to be so awesome, right? So I'm smiling during your explanation because it sounds like a study that might actually work uh, quite well in this country during uh, perhaps our next election. Uh, so what's next for you? What's the role that global business and entrepreneurship can play in developing countries? Yeah, I think on the global business side, you know, it's been really fun working on mobile money because all of my work before that was kind of in agriculture and very NGO donor space. And by working on mobile money, which is, you know, a telecoms company's product, I've been hanging out in the private sector in these markets a little. And so what's next is a bunch of work with actually private sector players in the market, so with the telcos and with the banks, trying to think about how do you build the right set of digital products that will help poor people? And what sorts of digital products do you want? And how do you build them, you know, in the way that creates a lot of impact for people, but also, you know, preserves the fact that you might need to make some money, you know, at the end of the day. The way the private sector seems to be able to scale in emerging markets is really striking. Every household in Kenya has an account on mobile money now. Wow. It would have been very hard for an NGO to try and go door to door to get everybody to do this. So what's on your data wish list? If you could instantly have a full data set uh, at your disposal, what would it include? What story would it tell? Wow. That's a tough <laughs> question, Neil. I think the sad thing is emerging markets or developing countries, at least the ones I work in in Africa, data is so sparse. When I started my PhD, it was very clear that I wasn't going to be able to take a data set off the shelf. It doesn't exist. Right. Whatever you want to study, it doesn't exist. Right. And I always envy people who work on the U.S. because it's like, oh, go find this data set, apply for it. And I'm like, wow, what would the world be like if there were 100 data sets on different things? Right. So right. I think my wish list would be everybody who's doing this. Put your data out and make it public. Terrific. In the right ways, of course. Of course. Well, we'll look forward to more exciting things coming from your uh, research in the future. Tavneet, it's been great to have you here today. Thank you so much, Neil. It's been a pleasure. Tavneet Suri is a professor of applied economics here at MIT Sloan and scientific director for Africa for JPAL, MIT's Jamil Poverty Action Lab. You can stay up to date with Tavneet's projects in Africa at PovertyActionLab.org. Data Made to Matter is a production of the MIT Sloan School of Management. We are committed to bringing together MIT's intellectual resources to help managers invent the future. You can learn more at sloan.mit.edu slash podcast. If you like our show, please subscribe. You can leave us ratings, comments, and questions on iTunes. I'm Neil Hartman. Join us next time for data made to matter.